So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 17. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 17. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China in the 19th century. Taylor's ministry in China was characterized by going to the unreached and hard-to-reach places in China. Perhaps one incident that, that shaped his ministry more than anything else happened early in his career. While on one of his interior evangelistic journeys, he met a cotton dealer. This dealer was, this dealer was the leader of a reformed Buddhist group. The man came to Hudson after he heard him preach and said, I have long searched for the truth, as my father had before me. I have, I have traveled far, but I have not found it. I have found no rest in Confucianism, Buddhism, or Taoism. But I do find rest in what I have heard tonight, for now I believe in Jesus. He later said to Taylor, how long has the gospel been known in England? To which Mr. Mr. Taylor responded, oh, several hundred years. The man, the man said in response to this, what? And you have now only come to preach the gospel to us. My father sought after this truth for 20 years and died without it. Why didn't you come sooner? Fast forward to 2015, a student missionary named Jacob spent two months in the Philippines seeking to make disciples by sharing the gospel. Jacob and his translator had a Bible study with an elderly lady who found peace and salvation in Jesus' work on the cross. After she believed, she said to the two, when did Jesus, when did Jesus die for my sins? To which they respond, 2,000 years ago. The lady said, how long have you known this to be true? To which they responded, our whole lives. The lady said to them, why are you just now telling me this? I could have shared it with my family and my children who are grown and gone. Oh, how important it is to share the good news. Let's pray. Dear God, we know that it's not our preaching that makes the word of God work, but it's the word of God that makes our preaching work, and it's the Holy Spirit that makes our preaching work. So I pray that it won't be my words that go out, but it's God's word through the power of the Holy Spirit that convicts our hearts of our sin and encourages us with the gospel. Um, show us your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we dive in, let's first set the setting in chapters 10. So Romans chapter 10 is a subsection of Romans chapter 9 through 11. Paul in chapters 9 through 11 is dealing with the position of Israel or Jews pertaining to their salvation and why and why Jews as a nation are outside of salvation. In chapter 10, no, in chapter 9, Paul states that salvation for the Jews was not based on one Jewish ethnicity or their good works, but salvation for the Jews and Gentiles is based on God's sovereign choice in election. We see this in chapters 9, verses 6 through 16. Then in chapters 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul shows that Israel is outside of salvation because they do not submit to Christ's righteousness. Instead, they seek to establish a righteousness of their own. Finally, in chapters 11, 
Paul states that though many Jews have rejected God, God has not rejected them. And there will be a small remnant of Jews who will be saved. And both the Jewish believer and Gentile will be one people. This is the setting of chapters 9 through 11. Now some of you guys might, might be saying, I'm not Jewish, so what does this have to do with me? This is a fair question to ask. And I believe though we are not Jews, we can still learn from our Jewish brother in Christ, Paul the Apostle, and how he dealt with those who were lost or unsaved. Amen? So listen as I read. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God for them is they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who, who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word nail you is the word nail you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of the faith we, that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jews and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in, of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are those feet who, share, who preach the good news. But they have not all believed, obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what has, heard, what has he heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of God. So my first point is, the gospel is for the lost here. The gospel is for the lost here. We tend to read over verse 1, but we can truly learn a lot from Paul in this verse. Paul, who was persecuted and harassed by Jews and ousted by the very people he is writing about, has no malice in his heart toward the Jews here. Instead, he has concern for them and wanted them to be saved. In chapter 9, Paul expressed his deep concern for the lost by saying, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anger in my heart. For I could wish that I myself would, would accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to their fest. Then again, in the very next chapter, he showed his heart for love, of love for those who are lost as he prays for their salvation. So Paul clearly understood that there are only two kinds of people in this world, 
but saved and unsaved. And, he, and in his letters, he sought to encourage, encourage the saved by pointing them to Christ for grace. And he sought to love the unsaved by pointing them to Christ for salvation. But remember, remember, Paul was not always like this in verse 1. Paul was a murderer who sought to destroy and kill Christians. But God flipped him. One of the pictures that we get from Paul is, if God can flip Paul, God can flip anyone. If God can flip Paul, he can flip your unsaved children that are here. If God can flip Paul, he can flip your unbelieving parents. If God can flip Paul, he can flip your atheist friend. We continue to see God's, we, we continue to see Paul's heart for the lost in verses, in verses 2. Notice how Paul does not attack the lost, but actively find common ground with them. He states they have a zeal for God, for the true God. He's no, he, knows they are not, he knows they are wrong, but he, he does not let them know how sinful they are, or tell them to turn or burn or crack or bake. Instead, Paul sees that the lost are blind, and he seeks to show them a better way. Brothers and sisters, do we truly understand spiritual blindness? How many of us will honk our horns and tell a blind old lady to get out of the way if we were stopped at a crosswalk? Well, maybe in Baltimore, but that's a, diff- <laughs> that's a different story. Wouldn't we get out and patiently walk beside her and walk her to a better way? Friends, it is the same with the lost. They are walking in complete darkness and they do not even know it. Therefore, we must be patient as we seek to show them a better way. So how are we handling our lost friends here? How are our hearts and actions towards our lost children? Speaking of children, chances are a three-year-old is not going to understand Christ perfectly in big church. But he will understand Jesus by how mommy and daddy talk to one another at home. By hearing what mommy and daddy say when someone cut them off on the highway. Well, this is a big one. By hearing daddy and mommy say, you are forgiven and loved after the child made a big mistake. And I mean like a big mistake. So how are we handling our lost parents, our co-workers, our relatives and children, and even spouse? Are we attacking them with, with a, are we attacking them or having a Christ-like concern for them? Are we honking our judgmental horn at the blind, or are we kindly sowing Christ's forgiveness and gospel to the lost while praying for their salvation? Or do our actions show that we, don't even, that we do not have hope that God can save the lost here, so we don't even pray or share? Thus, withholding the gospel from them, the very message that can save their souls. Sometime after 9-11, an American pastor asked a missionary among Muslims, do you think Osama bin Laden could be saved? Now, of course, the answer is yes. But the missionary turned to the American pastor and said, the real question is, will you share the gospel with him? And are you praying for his salvation right now? Brothers and sisters, we have no right to withhold the gospel from anyone. We have no right whatsoever to withhold prayer and the gospel from anyone. We must share the gospel with all who are here among us. Now, I'll say this. Whether you are free will or predestination, not everyone is going to heaven. 
And it's not our job to figure that out, but we need to have a healthy mindset that is ready to know that not everyone is, is going to be saved. However, we must preach the gospel. So I believe the principle that we get from verses 1 and 2 is that as we are living day to day among the lost, we must be prayerful for their salvation. If we truly love the lost, we must be prayerful for their salvation. John Calvin said, to make intercessions for men is the most powerful and practical way in which we can express our love for them, end quote. This is because when we pray for the lost, we are asking the most powerful being in heaven and earth to act in a way that only he can act. John Calvin also said that doubtful prayer is no prayer at all. So when we do pray for the lost, approach the throne of God with boldness. Lastly, on verses 1 and 2, as we seek to be soul winners for Christ, we should seek to be understanding with the lost. Seek, Seek to be patient with them and sympathetic and emotionally controlled. This is to say we should be level-headed. This is hard to do with those who we are closest to. It's harder to share, this, it, it, it's harder to share the gospel with, with our family than it is a stranger because we can be so emotionally driven that we become a hindrance to the gospel. So matter of fact, let's go before the throne and pray for the salvation of the lost here right now. If you know a person who is lost, you can pray for them quietly in a moment. And if you can't think of anyone, then please pray for the millions of Afghan refugees that they can enter into countries that are open to the gospel so they can hear the gospel. Let's pray. Dear God, we know that we have loss in our families and in our friend groups. We know that the only hope of their salvation is through the gospel. We pray that you can give us opportunities to share the gospel with them and pray for their salvation. And you can open their hearts and you'll be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go to continue to verses 3 and 4. So my second point is, The gospel is for us. The gospel is for us. So Paul's point in these verses is that Jews were not being saved because they were choosing to establish their own righteousness instead of trusting in the righteousness of Christ. So what does this have to do with us today? Well, from that verse and from that point, we clearly see that there are two kinds of righteousness in this world today a righteousness that comes from our own doing, and a righteousness that comes from believing in Christ. The question we must ask ourselves is, which one are we relying on? Do we think our own righteousness is enough to please God? Friends, we must understand that no amount of good works can ever be enough to please God for salvation. This is why we must rely on Christ's righteousness and not our own. A few years ago, Montreal preached a sermon from Hebrews chapter 10, and he was explaining why we humans need Jesus Christ to be our mediator who intercedes on our behalf. So he took Isaiah 64, 6, which states that all of our righteousness are like filthy rags, 
And then he took Philippians chapter 3, where Paul laid out all the good works that he did before believing in Jesus. And Paul ends by saying, all of those good works was done. So so Montreal's point was, the reason why we need Christ's righteousness is because on our very best day without Christ, all we can offer to God is the power of dirty, filthy rags and piping hot dung. And God is not going to accept that. This is why we must rely on Christ's righteousness and not our own. Because when we believe in Christ, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven, and Christ's righteousness is put on us like a coat. And when God sees us, he does not see our filthy rags. He sees his son's righteousness, and he accepts us as his son and his daughter. Friends, we must not establish a righteousness of our own but trust in the righteousness of Christ. What does the song say? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I did not trust the sweetest fame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Fun fact, when I was in Africa, I met a missionary who drove his truck in the sinking sand. So see, all other ground is sinking sand. <laughs> that story is a freebie, so do whatever you want with it. So let's go to verses nine, I mean five to nine. So Paul is comparing the two righteousness that we just talked about. He said that Moses wrote about a righteousness that comes from doing good works, the one that is not good enough for salvation. But then Paul writes, but Paul says the righteousness that is based on faith in Christ does not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? But Paul is saying, what is Paul saying here? I believe Paul is saying Christ's work on the cross removes all and any doubt of salvation. Therefore, a person who has a righteousness based on faith in Christ does not have any doubt of their eternal life or salvation. A person that is trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross does not say, I wonder if I will ascend into heaven one day after I die. No, they fully know that after, the, after death, they will be in the presence of the Savior. In verses 8, Paul is saying, if righteousness that is based on faith in Christ does not say, who will descend into the abyss? This is to say, a person that is trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross does not wonder if they'll be in hell after they die. They understand, that, they understand fully that there is no condemnation whatsoever for those who are in Christ. They know for sure that, what, who, that whoever has the Son has eternal life. So how do we apply this today? Well, my dad taught me that Satan tries to do really two things. He tries to keep the unsaved from being unsaved and he tried to keep the saved from being effective for the kingdom. One way that he keeps the unsaved from being effective is by making them doubt their salvation. Chances are, if a person is doubting their salvation, he or she probably won't be eager to advance the kingdom of God. Friends, if you, are, if you know you are in Christ, then you do not have to live in doubt of your salvation, but rest in peace knowing that you are in the Father's hands and nothing can take you out of his all-powerful hand. Not sin, not failures, not our past, 
Not even Satan can take, take our salvation away. We don't have to beat ourselves up over our sin. Instead, we trust that Jesus' work on the cross paid for all of our sins. When our conscience reminds us of our past, and when Satan reminds us of our, of our failures as a parent or our failures as a single, we rest in, in the fact that Christ bore our past and our failures on the cross and took the punishment away. Husbands and wives, Christ paid for all the shortcomings in your marriage. Stop beating yourself up over your sin, over your fair parenting. Oh, if I had one more Bible study. Oh, if I had one more youth camp. Stop beating yourself up over your sin. Christ died for your sin. Singles, Christ paid for all your shortcomings in, your, in the area of purity. Children, Christ died for all your sins. Simply believe in him. I think sometimes when it comes to our personal lives, we tend to put the gospel message on our bookshelf and say that message is just for the lost. But no, the gospel is for the unsaved and saved. We never get to a point where we graduate from the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is our, ho- is our only hope. A pastor once said that the gospel is not the door we walk through. It is the very room that we live in, end quote. I say it's the whole house. It's, it's the front yard. It's the backyard with, with, with a nice pool. It's even the white picket fence. We must always be preaching the gospel to ourselves. We must always have a gospel sermon prepared for our hearts. Because if we do not, Satan will definitely have a sermon prepared for us. Look, Satan looks at the Christian and calls him by his sin. God looks at the Christian and calls and sees the righteous robes of his son, Jesus Christ, and calls the Christian by her name, which is justified. God will never label Christ's eternally forgiven and justified bride as their sin struggles. Therefore, we, the church, must make it our goal to distinguish Christian sin struggles from their true identity and not label them as their sin struggles. Scripture makes it clear that anyone that is in Christ, he is a new creation. Brothers and sisters, our identity is not our past, but it is Christ. Our name tag is not our sin struggle, but it is the justified child of the king. The sin we battle with and sometimes fall to does not define us, but it is Christ who defines us. And as for our sin struggles, all who are predestined will be justified. And all who are justified will be sanctified. And all who are sanctified, he will glorify. Mark Dever says, if we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. At the very center of the gospel stands the great exchange of Christ's righteousness and our sin. Friends, what does the song say? Jesus paid it all. It does not say Jesus paid some or Jesus paid a lot. It does not say Jesus paid half and we pay the half. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as straw. You know those cheesy Facebook posts that Christian baby boomers post all the time? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Some of you guys like one today. Seven days without prayer makes a week. Okay, Boomer. I saw one that said, when Satan reminds you of your past, 
remind him of his future. And I like, I like that one. But I say, when Satan reminds you of your past, spit in his face with the gospel. Look at your neighbor and say, when Satan reminds you of your past, spit in his face with the gospel. Some of you guys, some of you guys are thinking I need to spit in my spouse's face then. <laughs> Let me stop. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther said this, so when the devil throws your sin in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. However, I know the one who suffered and made payment on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, I will be also. Amen? Now, what about those in the room who do not believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? I'll say this. Everyone in this room has a past. We all have a past. Also, we all use some type of small g gospel to help us cope with our past. We might use the gospel of alcohol or the gospel of fame, money, or sex to help us cope with our past. But none of those gospels actually save us from our sins, our true problem. When it comes to truly dealing with the difficulties of our past, we must know that it is only the true gospel of Christ Jesus that can truly help us deal with our shame and our guilt, our pride, our brokenness that reminds our consciousness of what we have done or what have been done to us. It is only at the cost can our past be totally forgiven and we be set free from the weight of our past. Friends, if you are here and you are not trusting in Christ, then turn to him, believe in him, and find peace and joy in his forgiveness. Now Paul in this chapter talks about we are, we are justified when we have faith in Christ in our hearts. So that means that we can have a head knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. We can know who he is in our heads, but we need a heart knowledge. This heart knowledge showed by repenting from our sins, turning from how we used to live, and living for Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we won't be perfect. We will fall. But when we do fall, we don't stay down. In the power of Christ, we get up and we continue to walk in that spirit-filled life. So now, we go to verses 10 through 13. So my last point is, the gospel is for all to hear. The gospel is for all to hear. Look at how many times Paul makes it clear that the gospel is for all. In verse 11, Paul states that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, he states that the Lord is Lord of all. In verse 12, he also says that he gives his riches on all who call on him. Then in verse 13, he states that everyone who calls on the name will be saved. I'll give you another freebie. Those boys at seminary in their fancy three-piece suits, a.k.a. the professors, they taught me that whenever a biblical author takes the time to repeat something, then it is extremely important. So Paul is trying to make it extremely clear that the gospel is for everyone. The question we must ask ourselves today is, do we act as as if the gospel is for everyone? Do we believe the gospel is for everyone? 
Do we, do we act like we actually want the gospel to be for everyone? If God was to judge our day-to-day personal conversations behind closed doors, would he say that that child of mine wants the bad people to be saved? We all want the bad people to be punished for their crimes, but there is nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But do we actually want them to be saved, too, from their sins? I think the way we Christians in our small Christian circles talk about drug dealers, drug addicts, or prostitutes, or rapists, or racist people, or murderers, or child molesters, is as, is as if we don't want them to be saved. As if we don't want their, as if we don't want their lives to be changed by the gospel, so they can reach some of their friends who are doing the same thing. As if we don't want the hymn Jesus paid it all to be true. As if we want there to be certain people we can look at and compare ourselves to, so we feel good about our own personal sin and failures. As if the best thing spiritually is for these people to rot in prison because prison and not the gospel are really going to reform them. To write in prison where they can be taught to commit the same actions but better. As if Jesus, Jesus, did, not have this, as if Jesus did not have saving murderers on his mind when he hung on a cross and told a murderer that hung right next to him that he would be in paradise after he believed. Don't get me wrong. We Christians should always be for justice. There is nothing wrong for praying that justice falls on the bad people. We should do that each and every day. However, as Christians, justice should never be the end result, but justice and hopefully salvation. It is possible to seek both. Paul said in 1 Timothy that this is good and it's pleasing that in the sight of all, that in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all, A-A-O, all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. For, there's, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. John Bradford was a preacher in the 19th century. And when he would see criminals hung on the, or executed, he would proclaim, but, but for the grace of God, there goes I. I believe we can say the same thing today. But for the grace of God, there goes us. Friends, we have no right to uphold the gospel from anyone. We must share the gospel with all men. I have another one. What about Muslims? Is the gospel for Christian murdering Muslims? If you have not heard, hating Muslims is in. And sadly, if someone bashes Muslims in the SBC or just the local church, there's usually a comfortable amen. I'm, I'm only 26, and this is what I have heard pertaining from some Christians pertaining to Muslims. The only way to solve the Muslim problem is to wipe them all out. We need to turn them into a sea of glass. I'll gladly go over and kill some Taliban for free. If radical Muslims ever come to America, I will show them what real Christians are supposed to do. Brothers and sisters, the problem is not Islam or Muslim, but it's sin. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the sin and the kingdoms of darkness. The moment we, the church, turn from fighting the kingdom of darkness 
and turn to fighting flesh, we lose. The moment we, the church, turn from fighting the kingdoms of darkness and turn to fighting flesh, we lose. What I'm trying to get us to see is, as Christians, we need to stop letting the stupid noise of this world, like the noise of CNN, Fox News, social media, tell us how we should look at the world. Instead, look at the world through the eyes of God. What does looking at the world through the eyes of God mean? My missions professor at Southern was a missionary in a Muslim country for 20 years. And he gives a story on how he came to view the world through God's eyes the longer he, he was on the field. He said he would drive down a street and a stop sign and a local jihadist Muslim would ask him for donations. He became more and more frustrated each day and saw him one day and said, look, I'm not going to help you kill innocent people. Over time, God began to work on the missionary's heart. And now when he would see the Muslim, he did not see a jihadist. He saw a lost man who had totally lost in darkness, heading straight to hell. The missionary had compassion on him and began to start conversation with him and eventually share the gospel with him. The missionary did not know if he believed or not, but he shared the gospel and prayed for his salvation. This is what it looked like to view the world through God's eyes. It, it is to see that there are only two kinds of people in this world, saved and unsaved. And who am I to, to ever withhold the gospel and the love of Christ from the unsaved person based on their religion, color, or skin, or past? Viewing the gospel through the, through the eyes of God is when there was a Muslim in, in Indonesia who kidnapped two kids from a local church and cut their heads off and put their heads in front of the church building for all to see. And when the police finally caught this man, he took him to the police station and sat him down right in front of the parents of the two children who were murdered. And this is what the parents told them, told the man. They said, you will face judgment from this country for what you did. And if you, do, and if you do not repent of your sins, you will face judgment from God one day. However, you will face no judgment from us because we forgive you and we love you. That is what real Christians do. Because that is what God did for us when, when we murdered his son. Let me paint a picture of what we mankind did to God. God decided to make a perfectly good world, and he gave this world to us as a totally free gift to enjoy. We did, not, we did nothing to earn this world at all. God gave it to us, but he loved us. And what we decided to do was to destroy his perfectly good world after, he did, after we did this, instead of God destroying us, he told us, just wait one day, and I will send my son, and he, will be, and he will restore the world that we destroyed and make all things correct. When God's son came into the world, what did we do? We murdered and mutilated his son. Some historians believe that if a person had no clue who Jesus was, and they were watching him be crucified, that that person would not be able to tell if Jesus was a male or female. That's how bad some historians believe Jesus was beaten and mutilated. We did this to God's son, and what does God do? 
He says, if you do not repent of your sins, then one day you will, be, you will pay for them by my judgment. But if you believe in my son that you murdered, then you will, have, then you will face no judgment from me. And I will love you forever and forgive you of your sins. And you will be my child forever. Maybe the reason why the parents of the children were able to forgive and love this man because they were faithfully walking and growing with God, the only person who can give a believer strength and power to forgive like that because he has forgiven like that and even greater. The only way we can ever forgive like that is, 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 like, is if we are faithfully walking in the Spirit, growing in Christ, instead of, instead of letting the stupid noise of this world control how we look at the loss. The further we get away from God's word and Christ, the more radical it looks to live like Christ and follow his word, and the more easy it looks to follow the noise of this world. Now, we, we have covered racist people. We have covered murdering, murdering Muslims. So we might as well cover all of, our, all of our bases and talk politics. Now, I know you're not supposed to talk politics behind the pulpit, but I'll give you another freebie. Sorry to burst your bubble, but I do not care. I don't give a rasp behind by what I am supposed to do in polite society. Not a rasp behind, a dog's behind, or anyone else's behind for that matter. Like, I'm, not, I'm not joking either. I don't care. For years, the American church said, we are not going to talk about race because whenever we do, it divides us. Then for years, racial injustice and oppression ran rampant in and out of a church. And the church said nothing about it because we were scared of division. Maybe it is the same today with politics. For years, we have, we have never said, we have said to never talk about politics in the church. And for years, we have let the noise of politics influence how we look at the world instead of God's word. So let's see. Our current president is President Joe Biden, and the past president was President Trump, the Trump. Now, we know from God's word that he wants all people to be saved. We know from God's word that we should be praying for the salvation of the lost. Also, we know from God's word that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the kingdoms of darkness. Now, let's make a mental chart in our head. Make it in there if you want. One side is titled, How many times in the past six years did we genuinely and sincerely pray for the president's salvation and for them to use godly wisdom? Then on the other side, it titled, how many times did we mock or insult or ridicule the president in conversations or on social media? Answer in your head and see which side had the most marks. How many friendships have we destroyed over politics? Gospel-centered friendships over politics. As a Christian, we must be separated from the world. If our conversations look exactly the same as an unbeliever, then what make a Christian? A father said that he was going to disown his own children if they reported him on January 6th. There has to be a line if we are Christians. 
I want to be very clear about this, like crystal clear. I am not saying Christians should not be politically active. We need more Christians to be politically active, I think. Also, this is not about picking sides. And for those in the back who did hear me, I'll say it again. I am not saying we should not be politically active, and this is not about picking sides. It is about whether we as Christians are viewing these people through the eyes of God or through the stupid noise of this world. At the end of the day, the president is either saved or unsaved, totally blind walking in darkness or saved walking in light. If a person, if, if a person is unsaved and walking in darkness, is the best thing for us to do is to insult this man or to pray that God will fit this man? This is easy enough for children to understand. So why do we so many times just bash every politician that we don't like as if that is going to change? Look, we're all, I'm guilty of this. We, we all do this. But look, the Bible does not say we need to like these people. I'm, I'm an introvert. I don't like anyone. <laughs> but the Bible does say we need to love these people. And we can show love by praying for, praying for their salvation and praying for them to use godly wisdom. God has flipped kings before throughout history. He can flip anyone. I really like what Jonathan Meeman said about Christians and politics. He said, it is not wrong for Christians to be in a political party. However, a Christian, is in it, however, a Christian in a political party should be like a son putting on his father's shoes. The son is in the shoe, but does not perfectly fit the shoe. Thus, the Christian can be in a party, but should never perfectly fit that party, end quote. Why is this so? Because at the end of the day, every political party is simply a human philosophy. And Paul says to be careful that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. If a Christian perfectly fits a political party, then he or she has taken Christ off the throne of their hearts and has put a donkey or elephant in his pace. And they are being taken captive by empty human philosophy, whose savior is man and whose final destination is hell. I want to be very clear. I'm not saying we should not be political and not care about politics. The point I'm trying to make is, are we viewing the political world through the eyes of God or are we letting the stupid noise of this world control how we live in this world? That's all I'm saying. There are people in this church that have not allowed the stupid noise of this world to affect the way they look at the lost and live among the lost here. They have allowed God's word to show them how to live among the lost. In 2016, Job preached a sermon where he was describing the advancement, the, how the kingdom of God advanced and how it looks. He used a parable that said, the kingdom of God is like yeast that the woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all, all throughout the dough. Meaning, it can be difficult to see the kingdom of God at work, just like it's difficult to see the yeast at work. However, just like the, ye- the, just like the yeast grows the dough, the kingdom is growing in front of us. Then he applied this truth to Baltimore by saying, when people are getting shot and killed in a city and there's violence all around and the kingdom of God looks like it's not growing, 
That is not the time for Christians to move out. That is the time for Christians to move in in order to be sought and light in the world to be used to advance God's kingdom, end quote. This makes sense when we are looking at the world through the eyes of God and not the stupid noise of the world. The noise of the world says, these people are just thugs and gangbangers. I hope they die and go to hell. God sees them and says, they are my creation, whom I sent my son to die for, and I will use faithful Christians to proclaim the gospel to them so some might be saved. There are people in this very room who are looking at the world through the eyes of God. Cindy and Troy are some of them. Cindy and Troy lived in Columbia, Maryland. Nothing happened in Columbia, Maryland, <laughs> but like a few suburban soccer moms gossiping about Margaret's husband. They saw the Baltimore riots on the news, and instead of listening to the stupid noise of the, of the world and the narrative of the news, they moved to Baltimore and have been proclaiming the gospel to the children all around their block. When they were on vacation, a, a, a lady named Cindy came to their door, and I was there at the house. This lady said that Cindy is the only person who cares about me. She makes sure that I have all my medication taken care of. She prays for me, and she's the only person who I know who cares about me. <clears throat> where, where do you live in Maryland before you came here? Yeah, so Joe and just lived in the Eastern Shore of Maryland. <laughs> you look there, you see cows on the left, you see corn on the right. Like, nothing happens there. Then Joe moved his family to Baltimore to plant a gospel-preaching church. That does not make sense when you listen to the noise of the world. Even though Montreal and Jody used to live in a multi-million dollar, 25-bedroom mansion house, <laughs> They, moved, they still moved to Baltimore, and they've been proclaiming the gospel since. The list goes on. Raymond and Anna, Jacob and Julie, the Plasters, the Roaches, Steph and Kevin, Alton, Casey and Julie. The, the list goes on. And I want to commend those who were born and raised in Baltimore and stayed to proclaim the gospel. Like the one and only Brian Sessons and his wife, Dawn who are proclaiming the gospel through their nonprofit, even, and even Kenny Smith. Kenny was sought five times, like not for sharing the gospel, but he eventually gave his life to Christ and stayed in Baltimore to mentor the youth. We can either let the noise of this world tell us how to live among the laws, or let God's word tell us how to live. All right, now let's finish this thing out. Let's read verses 14 to 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And it is written, how beautiful are those feet who preach the good news. Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Now this is self-explanatory. How can our lost parents call on him in whom they have not believed in? How can the drug dealer believe in whom they have not heard? How are Muslims supposed to hear the gospel without someone preaching? How can we preach if we do not go? 
Another freebie, the word preach in verse 15 simply means proclaim. So, so the Bible is not saying you have to be a preacher behind a pulpit to be qualified to share the good news. We all preach or proclaim the good news. Speaking of good news, it's only good news if people get to hear it and believe it. It was good news to the man that Huston Taylor met, but it was never good news to the man's father who searched for the truth his whole life and died without hearing it. He never got to hear the good news and call on Jesus to save him. I cannot help but imagine Paul Paul writing these verses with much urgency on his heart as he knew that there were thousands in the Roman Empire who needed to believe in the one whom they had not heard. Maybe that's why he wrote verse 15, how beautiful are those How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, everyone in this room is beautiful and handsome. No, really, I'm not not joking. It's a biblical and theological fact that we are beautiful. Scripture says that we are made in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, it it means a number of things. But one thing that it means is we humans reflect or image who God is. For example, God is love. We reflect God because we are able to love. We cannot love perfectly like he does, but we can love. God is able to hate. We are able to hate, not perfectly like God or always rightly like he does. God enjoys friendships as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit has been in perfect union since eternity past. And we are able to enjoy friendships as well. So since God is the very essence of beauty, we humans are beautiful as we image or reflect his beauty. This is not some self-help crap. This is the word of God. So turn to your neighbor and say, you are beautiful. beautiful. Some of you you single people try to be slick, saying you are very beautiful. (laughs) I see you. The garden has no single ministries here. Now, with that being said, you guys are beautiful. But you know good and well that some of us have got some ugly feet. I'll be the first to admit I have ugly feet. I, I am dark skinned, I'm dark skinned, but if you saw my feet, you would think Jesus died only for my feet because they're whiter than snow. Like why waste perfectly good, expensive lotion from Dollar Tree on parts of the body that no one will see? But some of us got some ugly feet, like we got bunions and warts on our feet. Some of us got alien feet, like the middle toe sticks out longer than the rest. Some of us got some, like we're missing toes. It's like, I don't know, it's a tough life in Baltimore. But though our feet might be ugly, oh how beautiful they are to God when we share the good news. Cindy and Troy, how beautiful are your feet? when you share the good news to the kids on your block. Joe, how beautiful are your feet when you share Christianity Explained? Stephanie, how beautiful are your feet when you share the one hope to those you are, you are serving? Guarding Church, how beautiful are our feet when we share the good news? I'm going to close by with this story. This past summer, a team of college students spent a summer working at a refugee camp in Africa. There they met a poor refugee who had been forced to leave his country and live in this camp. 
After hearing the story of the particle son, he believed the gospel. It was, nothing, it was nothing extraordinary. He heard the word and placed his faith in Christ. After a week, the refugee found some members of the team and asked them, how do I read the Bible? What happened was he found this super complicated study Bible and he was getting confused from the commentary section and actually the word of God. He had no concept of how to read the Bible, like book, chapter, verse, nothing like that. So the students taught him how to read the Bible and brought him a simple Bible. After a few weeks, the refugee came and told the students, thank you for the Bible. I've been reading it every day and I'm no longer afraid to teach this to my friends and family because now I know what the Bible is saying to me. Friends, he was just waiting for someone to share the gospel with him. How many of us have, have friends who are waiting to hear the gospel? How many of us have family members who are simply waiting to hear the gospel? Oh, how beautiful are the feet of those who share the good news. Dear God, um, thank, you, thank you, Lord, for your good news. Thank you, Lord, for your gospel that we can believe it and trust in your righteousness. On our bad days, we can trust in your righteousness. On our good days, we can trust in your righteousness as well. Thank you for um, giving a command for us to go into the world and proclaim this gospel to all. We pray that as we continue to live here in Baltimore and abroad, that we may not let the noise of this world control how we live and look at the world, but we let God's word and we look through the and we look at the world through God's eyes. In Jesus' name, Amen.